You're listening to The New Paris. I'm your host, Lindsay Tremuda. I've been waiting to talk about the new book by today's guest for years. Actually, ever since I met him some seven years ago when he was already hard at work researching it. John Bonet has worked as a journalist for three decades and currently serves as the managing editor at Resi. He is, particularly for wine lovers, best known for his wine reporting and two essential wine books, The New California Wine and The New Wine Rules. That one has sold more than 50,000 copies and been adapted into numerous languages. But his latest essential wine book is called The New French Wine. It came out earlier this year, and it is truly his most deeply researched chef d'oeuvre that tells the groundbreaking tale of the world's greatest wine culture at a moment of profound change. What follows was recorded several weeks ago when I had the great honor of leading a discussion with John about this immense project at the American Library in Paris. I hope you enjoy it. So I think the best place to start is this idea of the new, because we have clearly done a thing on in both of our works uh, where, you know, it's a bold choice. It elicits some questions. Um, I know why I chose the word. We new. found our brands. We found our brand, well, although I, gotta, I, guess, yeah. I guess I got to keep it going. But um, I know why I chose that word for, for my work. What does it represent? for this project and, 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 you know, cause essentially it sets up the whole thesis of your book. So, so can you explain that the new? Sure. So, I mean, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. It, it is sort of the brand like new California wine, new wine rolls, new French wine, you know, the next one will be coming soon. Hopefully we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, Scoop. But um, I mean, some of it is just as a journalist, you think about news value, you think about what is actually worthy of writing a significant project about. And so that sort of defines, for me, that defines uh, the way that you create a scope um, for a very big thing. But, you know, with wine, I mean, part of it is like with wine, people sort of are sort of like, oh, like, let's do a book on Chianti. Let's do a book on, I don't know, Rioja. Like, I mean... It, it, a lot of the same ground gets trod that's never been my thing uh and i think for my own curiosity and uh you know sort of intellectual need i always am looking for what is different uh but when it came to france i think it, it's interesting it started as very much the new in france at least in wine is going to be very much on the fringe it's going to be all kind of Weird little projects, natural wines, you know, funky stuff sort of off. I'll be hanging out in the Auvergne uh, doing my thing. And what became very clear, uh, and, and you and I have talked about this a lot, uh, is that what was happening was huge and transformative and very much a mirror of the fact that France was and is becoming a new place. And so even compared to sort of, you know, my going back to the same word over and over again, I think this project, it became immediately, maybe not immediately clear, it became clear that in order to tell the story of the new French wine, I was going to have to tell the story of the new French everything else-ish, uh, which, you know, which you have done as well. But it's interesting because new does not suggest that somehow you lose the past, but you really need to understand and examine the past to be able to to follow the shift and see how really, you know, the evolutions are happening. And and obviously that goes 
towards something else I really want to talk about. And and people should know also, this is a two volume book. It is, it has narrative in one book and uh, an entire chronicling of the producers in another. So this is not by any means, you know, uh, lightly researched or lightly explored i mean the ever since i've known john he's been working on this book and we'll get into that too but so you draw on something that i think is very important and and i i have been very um uh driven by as well in my work which is this recurring theme of myth versus reality um both not only for the country but wine culture and you know, there was a New York Times story that came out this morning that you and I were talking about or uh, texting uh, with a bit of frustration about um, that basically could have felt like it was written in the 1940s, which was essentially that uh, Paris is so inspiring. Uh, what was it? It was like the artistic. It was it was it was sort of a traveler's guide to the places you could go in Paris that had inspired famous artists. So Picasso used to get drunk here and yeah. Hemingway did this here, except we've seen that about seven billion times. Um, and it was presented as though it was new. And it's sort of a regurgitation of everything that is, you know, old and entrenched in this romantic history. So it se- seemed like a very timely example of, you know, what we see happen over and over again. So can you talk about why you examined this idea of the myth and what that means in terms of wine? Uh, and everything else, honestly. So, so it's interesting. There, there's two parts to kind of the, to to the myth of France. Uh, there is the part that uh, that is an externality. There's the part that Americans and the rest of the world sort of bathe themselves in and uh, and admire and and you know that that inspires and makes them buy lots of Lusitan and uh, <laughs> lavender sachets and all the things. So, but there's also an an enormous part of it that is that. There is the myth of France that the French also believe in and that they also perpetuate. And those two are completely symbiotic, uh, which is to say that the French have a very, very clear view of how they think the past has come to bring them to this moment. And they sort of bathe, I mean, you look everywhere, they, they bathe in history or a very specific telling of history. And it is it is a strong national myth. Uh, and 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 the I, I apologize if I'm diving farther into your questions, but I mean the the title of the first chapter, which is Patrimoine or What's Old Is New Again, is very much entrenched with this idea of patrimoine, and it doesn't. I mean, it's history kind of, it's patrimony kind of, but it doesn't actually really translate in the sense that the word itself. You mean the word, the word itself? Yeah. That, that there's not the this in, in I think the Anglophone world, there's not this this fixation on the the kind of moral tie to the past, whether real or fictional. Uh, and so um, myth became very important uh, in terms of, A, identifying sort of how the French view their own world and specific to wine and the ways in which the, 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 the famous wines of France, the famous appellations of France are, you know, they are built on quality, they are built on terroir, they are built on, you know, on the extraordinary discovery of how good a thing tastes from this place but at the same time they're also they are very much kind of convenient half truths in their way and it literally if you if you look at the way that an appellation law is written the cahier de charge so this is like the the e now approves it it goes into french legislative text it is officially encapsulated in law the history of every appellation not just for wine for all for any appellation culturally 
is written into French law. So whatever the 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 official trade group decides is their history is in is it is it is codified. Hmm. And that is, you know, that is not something that happens anywhere else in the world. No other wine region. No, I mean they they have very specific production standards, but this this kind of this like this this storytelling aspect is just not it's not baked into the culture in the same way. So one of the things that I found kept recurring as I was going from region to region was scraping away at the you know the the official story and finding that uh, that everything um, to use the favorite French word of all time everything is compliqué everything is more complicated than it would appear uh, and that there are many different sides to the story that these things that we take as eternal truths in wine that uh, such as I mean. Pick any appellation, pick your favorite appellation, pick your favorite wine. Like, you know, is it Gevray Chambertin? Is it, uh, is it Cahors? Is it, uh, is it Mont Louis? Like, maybe you could trace some semblance of a history back to, let's say, the, I don't know, Second Republic, if you really tried. But on balance, like, the wines as they exist today, or even as they existed when the Appalachians were created, which again didn't start till 1936, really doesn't resemble the larger history of these places. And so, when uh, when the 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 powers that be in one place or another get upset that there's troublemakers who want to seek the new, in fact, what was what was true over and over again was that these these quote unquote new things were simply iterations of wines or grape growing or techniques or culture that had existed in the past. And so, again, this sense of patrimony where, you know, everything in the present is connected to the past was, in fact, totally true. It just half of it was true and half of it was myth. Wow. Uh, you definitely did. Oh, sorry, that was a very, very elaborate. No, no. But you 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 this connects perfectly to what I wanted to talk to you about, too, which was the issue of the Appalachians, right? Because this is quite unique, as you as you've said, um, but it's also a system that's quite difficult for young, not well, not even necessarily young, but just winemakers who want to do things a bit differently, notably natural winemakers. It's very difficult for them to navigate in this system. How does that play out, you know, in practice uh, for for winemakers like that? And also, I think you also talk about how there's been an attempt to have another set of rules for natural winemaking, which is also complicated because by definition, it's supposed to be sort of free from all these rules. So, yes, uh, although it very much depends on where you are, which is to say, so so the Appalachian Controle system, again, is, is, is very formalized and the way that it was constructed, and it was constructed really over a 30-year period. There were about six successive laws, um, and it wasn't constructed for some grand noble idea of what uh, the patrimony of wine was it was created as an anti-fraud mechanism because uh in the years uh both both during but after phylloxera which was the grape blouse that really destroyed a lot of the french vineyards everywhere in the in the wine in wine producing france there was rampant rampant fraud so maybe you would find grapes from elsewhere maybe you would bring them from algeria or somewhere else in the colonies maybe maybe you would just mix up some prune juice and some spices and whatever else or so the appellations were were literally started as a me method of saying we want you to make wine like actual wine 
kind of from the place that you, you know that you're that you're in like if you're in champagne you should make champagne except even then again that's why it took so many different rounds they didn't say you have to use grapes from here you just it was like well you actually have to you know that eventually they got to that then they were like well you have to use certain grapes then they were like you can only produce a certain number and so this started in 1907 and it went to 1936 so the creation of the appellation system you know now we see it as this great preser preservation tool for tradition but it was literally it was a way to to get farmers to stop committing fraud not just farmers like um negos like you know anyone who was in the wine trade to to stop committing fraud the way it works today is that appellations are governed by their their odg their office directional general i think so that's the syndicate that like controls each appellation and then the enow which is the the governing body the governmental body that oversees it all they're sort of there to sign off on uh what the odg is what the syndicates believe they want in terms of rules, they kind of govern it. They approve whether a new appellation gets created, et cetera. But it's, it's very much built around local control. Um, this very long chapter that goes into why and why the the courts had to get involved. And the guy who created the Chateauneuf appellation and Sandicott um, basically sued his way successively through uh, numerous lawsuits up to the Cour de, Ca de Cassation, which is uh, the Supreme Court. And, yet, and they were well, always and, told that uh, France is not litigious. Yeah. So, point simply being that uh, the way the appellations function is very, very bureaucratic. And what could possibly go wrong if you're a young winemaker and you have a bunch of guys who've been in the appellation for 40 years who have a very specific way they want to farm? They love their Roundup. They don't want to, you know, they, they this crazy organics thing. You know, I mean, I'm I'm being extreme, but there is a very formal and very uh, codified and and somewhat calcified system in place to ensure that the Appalachians, quote unquote, protect themselves. But then how does the new. So so what has happened over and over is that, you know, natural wine in particular, but it doesn't even necessarily have to be natural. It's just it's new people who come in. They don't necessarily have local connections. They are, you know, they are from a different generation. Maybe they want to make natural wine and the wine is a little different than uh, the Appalachians are used to. And the thing to remember is that most appellations have a tasting committee. And this is something, um, interestingly, that Josh Kirak signed off on in, I think, 1974 uh, as one of the additions to the appellation laws is that everyone who wanted to to win um, the, the, the agreement, like the approval uh, for to have an appellation wine, had to put their wine before a tasting committee. Now, who's on the tasting yeah, committee? Yeah, that was going to be my next you know. So you got a bunch of guys who like Sans, they like how Sanceres tasted with their, you know, their added yeasts and their this and their that and their high yields. And something comes along that's a little different. Or maybe, you know, you like your truck hit one of their vines, or maybe you weren't nice to them at the boulangerie, or you know, like you So a bit you, of a mafia. Yeah, you built your wall too high, whatever yeah. it is. So so I mean, there's a lot of pettiness in the Appalachian system as it's set up in some places. In some places you see it works very well. Um, but it was interesting when I was doing research, I thought, again, the things I thought I knew when I started, I thought that all these like natural winemakers who were moving their wine into Van de France. Um, so that's when you just you sort of you take what is theoretically the lowest possible designation for your wine. And Van de France is supposed to be complete crap. Table wine, right? It's table wine. Yeah, it used to be Van de Table. Now it's Van de France because the EU. 
Um, so at least, you know, it's 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 French crap instead of Spanish. Crap. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, they they did it not because they were making a statement. Typically, they were heartbroken at having to leave Appalachians. It was that they, you know, their wines were rejected too many times or they, you know, they were kicked out or I mean, and the thing the thing to remember is each time typically that you submit your wine, you have to pay a fee. So they would see over and over again that like, you know, they would submit their wine three times and maybe they would get it on the third time and maybe they wouldn't get it at all. And it wasn't like huge. It was like, I don't know, 100 euros a time. But you're just like, you know, these aren't people with a ton of money. And you're like, to your point, this this starts to feel kind of like a racket. So this all is happening. All of the changes that you were uncovering uh, happens really in lockstep with the changes and so the changing socioeconomic realities across France. I mean, you literally, every time I would talk to you, you'd be like, I'm driving through Orange. I'm driving through, you know, some region. And you're, you know, I know you were researching during the Gilets Jaunes protests, right? So I remember you telling me, you know, oh, they're there at the roundabout here. Um, so you saw over the many years, and we'll talk about that too, the many years that you were researching this book, a lot of broad shifts. So to what extent did that play a role in all of this research? And can you highlight maybe some of these shifts that had the most impact, you think, on the wine production, or at least as a mirror to what is ha- was happening in wine? So, uh, yeah, the Gilets Jaunes, which is the um, sort of the backbone of the Languedoc chapter, is uh, what we used to call in newspapers good copy. I mean, that was a mess, but it was good for my narrative, I guess. In, in the sense that the Languedoc is a hot mess and the Gilets Jaunes were a hot mess and they were expressing themselves very visibly uh, in their barbecues at the roundabouts and, you know, like taking down the Vinci toll booths and whatever. So, again, it became really clear at some point that what was happening in each of these regions was in some way a reflection of the economic and cultural changes in those regions, uh, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Languedoc and the Gilets Jaunes being a good example, the the bourgeoisie and the Chinese investors and the banks and insurance companies in the Medoc being another where we started the Bordeaux chapter this way. And finally, it felt like it was just too much of a downer. But one of the most poignant moments for me in 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 the course of traveling was I was in Poyac. Poyac is this is where Le, Chateau Latour, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, Chateau Mouton Rothschild, like, you know, most of the first growths in Bordeaux are. And Poyac is is kind of a it's kind of a bummer of a town. Like it's I was uh, there over the summer yeah. briefly. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. It's its poverty rate is 50 percent higher than the national average. Like they're finally starting to renovate some of the, the downtown and the port. But it's like at best you could call it a working class town. But I mean, I was literally it was like at the Intermarché getting gas. And like there were a bunch of dudes who are kind of rough trade around. I was like, I, I grew up in New York. I'm you know, there's not a lot of things that scare me, but I actually like, while I was out pumping the gas, I locked my car door. I was like, they may get me, but they're not getting my notebook. <laughs> but I was just like, this is insane. This is 600 meters from Chateau Lafitte. What is uh, that great happen? wealth? Yeah. yeah, great wealth. I mean, and, and what became clear was like, none of the wealth was trickling down. Um, for the most part, the crew class A have all gotten tax exemptions because they're job creators. So you know, this, I mean, we're not talking about like out in, you know, out in the Cantal or Corrèze, like the real hard scrabble France Profonde. We're talking about Poyac. Like this is 
40 minutes from Bordeaux, which is a prosperous city. This is a place that has the more the most sort of created wealth of any one town anywhere. And it's it's kind of a crappy place. And so how does that reflect the wine making that was happening? Well, I mean, what became clear was like that that was emblematic of how difficult it is to have change in the Medoc and how like Margot um, was in fact doing much, much better at, at its progressive values than Poyak. I mean, next sort of just about next appellation down because, you know, there was just there was a cultural shift. The flip side being you take somewhere like the Pays Nantes right around Nantes, where Nantes, uh, I did not expect to be what it was, which is this very young, prosperous city. Very green. Very green, very culturally progressive. And you see how not just Muscadet, which is the the kind of best known local wine, but but the Coteau d'Anceny, like all of the wine regions around, but Muscadet in particular, is going through this tremendous progressive revolution that very much reflects the way that Nantes is a city and the people in Nantes are supporting their local produce. And they see they see the need for great French wines to evolve. And again, you have, you know, you have this local, you know, this this local support, great neo bistros, young chefs, a a culture of France that is very 21st century, that is less uh, homogeneous, that is less sort of, you know, middle aged and white, that is moving. Uh, and uh, same thing in some way with Lyon and Beaujolais. Um, or frankly, Bone uh, in Burgundy. I was just going to ask you yeah. about Burgundy because obviously B- Burgundy is not is has always been a favorite wine region for a lot of American uh, wine drinkers. I think, but kind of that seems to me yes to, and no. It, uh, no, because it seems to me there are a lot of international winemakers who have set up there. I mean, the thing with Burgundy is for a long time, at least for Americans, it was considered like too complicated to understand. And there was just the the, the Burgundians didn't really engage with international trade. They still don't like to open their doors to visitors. Well, now for for a different reason, it used to be because they were like, you know, farmers who had no money and had like maybe been to the like two local villages, but had no idea what was going on in the world. Now it's because they're so well known and so revered that like they have no wine to pour for anyone. I guess same net effect, but very, very different reasons. Um, it is interesting that, you know, the, the part of Burgundy that's hard is the prices have become ridiculous. And even now, I mean, the Burgundians are more aware of this than anyone. And they're frustrated because they understand that if they don't find a way for a new generation to actually drink Burgundy at some level, then everyone will move on. And that the people who have made the wines that expensive, which are who they call the collectioner or the collectors, not the amateur or like the, the real fans, they're not loyal customers. Like that's not a sustainable market. And, and, and it's interesting, you know, just, I just got back from there last night, every single person in Burgundy you talk to, they're very clear that they have a moral responsibility to be making more affordable, like basic wine. You know, you could be in Bon Romanet, you could be in the Cote de Couchois, wherever, like it is this understanding that like, a wine region succeeds because people can drink it all the time. And when you go to Bone, you see the same thing. It is very international. It is surprisingly open for a, a wine region that did not, that was not historically open and welcoming. Out welcoming, like there's great food, there's great third wave coffee. Like it's it's a it's it's very engaged with the with the outside world. And I mean, not just throughout France, but like. Singapore and Tokyo and Argentina. And those are the people who are coming and trying to buy. Yeah. Um, with with some success. Or in some cases, those are the people who are coming to Burgundy and establishing themselves. And 
starting to make wine. And the fact that you can show up as someone with no land, with no pedigree, with no sort of history, and within a few years, at the very least, become a micronegos, like, you know, sort of buy grapes from different places and make a little bit of wine, and then eventually, hopefully, like, find a little plot of your own. Like, this place that was considered sort of the most closed and literally cloistered and, you know, monastic and mysterious of wine regions, it's astonishing how welcoming they are to anyone today who wants to come and try their hand at, 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 at doing a thing. So that's quite a big shift, obviously. I mean, you're, you've already named a, a few shifts across France. Obviously, there are plenty we could keep talking about that are... Just go region by region. I, I mentioned earlier that you have been working on this for a very long time. It's been like nine years. Yep. I don't know if you'll... I mean, I, I think you'll probably be able to detect that when you see it and you hold it in your hands and you start reading the the different sections. But this is this is just how... How did you do this? Like, what... Truly, because I, I mean, I've researched, you know, complicated projects before, but this just seems like I would just run scared and be like, take the advance money back. I can't do this. Just so how did you what was your process? Uh, well, there were I at least a dozen times when I was like, so what did I get paid as an advance? And how bad would my life be if I just sent them back a check Went even deeper into debt? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Probably by being too stupid to to have said no in the first place. Well, I should um, preface this by saying you you live part time in in Paris, yes, so you yeah. come back and forth. You've had, but I didn't when when I started this book. No, but you were already coming. This isn't like a yeah. new place of research for you. So I guess the the better question is, how did you organize the research once you had decided that you were too far in and you were gonna, you were going to produce this thing? How did you organize yourself? You've also, in your question, answered why I'm not writing the new Italian woman. Except I'm like, oh, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, I'm not going to a place that I don't know and doing another thing like this because that would that would be even stupider. How did I organize? So again, I thought this was going to be like a two-year project. And this literally started because I had just done New California. It was 2014. My editor at 10 Speed, uh, Emily, we went out for, uh, to, you know, for, for drinks, for wine, uh, at a natural wine bar in Oakland. Um, so never agree to do anything at a natural wine bar in Oakland. That is my takeaway. Well, I have loads of other questions about that. So like, you know, probably one, one or two, too many glasses of unsulfured Gamay in, uh, and we're talking about like, what, what should I do next, et cetera. And she's like, what about France? And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And I, so we talked about it. I was like, this is, you know, like, again, like, we'll look at the fringe and there's lots of cool stuff around the edges and like a couple of years, bang it out. You know, it'll be really fascinating. It'll be a chance to go see some parts of France. But what became really clear after a couple of three trips that there was an enormous amount to process that I was going to have to go everywhere. Um, So in terms of process, like the literal process, this is going to be the most unromantic answer ever. Like, I built a database. I literally built like a Google form that I could just start putting lots of information into and just copiously gathered notes and thoughts and ideas and started planning trips. Very quickly, you know, learned some lessons about logistics, like make a map before you start booking appointments because you think you know where places are. But like this was this was after the Jura and I was like, yeah, it's a tiny little wine region, you know, just. I'll book stuff whenever I can see people and, you know, it's fine. Like, I understand the French is very particular about appointments. 
And after like literally between every appointment, I would be driving 40 minutes. And I was like, screw this. Oops. You like, you know, you make a map and you start thinking, okay, this, this day is my, my, like, this day is my Morgon day. This day is my Sud Beaujolais day. This day is, you know, whatever. And you, or I, uh, you know, yeah, I'm not I, doing this yeah, project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's two years. Easy. Two years. But, but you know, I, I started to get a little bit more organized. But I, but honestly, I would have to do about five to six weeks of research for every three week trip. Um, wait, say that again. I would have to do about five to six weeks of research for every three week trip. I mean, when you see the book again, you will not be surprised by that information. And also, it's funny, you talk about a two-year, like, bang out a book in two years. It's still very complicated. I mean, I find, it's like, the. I mean, my body was, like, broken after both of these experiences. So I don't know how you maintained your self and, you know, through nine years of this. But you really were committed. Yeah. Uh, aside from the, like, 40,000 times I was just, again, like, I've done. But honestly, some of it became, you know, who gets, in a very in a very real way, who gets the experience that I got? Who gets to go see that many parts of France? Who I, I think I counted, I, uh, the course of this, I visited 72 departments. And, you know, who who gets to see all these places? Who gets to, like, spend this much time with, with people who are, like, out there doing the real work? Yeah. And lots of long nights in Airbnbs and whatever. I mean, it, it was a lot. But at the same time, you're just like, I would remind myself over and over again, who gets this experience? I right. get to do this thing and see this thing that like no one gets. Uh, I mean, I think even people who write sort of the the grand treatises about this is what's happening in France now, like, you know, maybe they go to a few regions but uh, no. or a few departments, but like it just, I mean, the scope of it was completely insane, but at the same time, it was also like, I will A, never have this chance again in my life to get to cover this much ground, but B, like this is, you know, if you really truly love France, if you if you love French culture, if you love French gastronomy, French wine, any of it, like this is, I mean, it's ridiculous to say it's a once in a lifetime opportunity, but it's just like this was like getting to the meat of it. And so yes, yeah. it was completely too much. But on the other hand, it was it was me satisfying this huge curiosity. Right. Well, and so the, Eric Asimov of the New York Times uh, featured the book this summer. And one of the things he said at the end of his review was he was very curious to see if he would see, obviously, or if any of us will see what the French have to say about this book. And it is not currently in French. I don't know if that is in the works. I mean, it would probably cost them so much money to translate this book. But when I win the lottery. Right. But have you had feedback from French wine writers or French producers who grasp what you have attempted to do? Uh, very modestly. I'm not expecting French wine writers to love it because it would be very much in the French ethos to to neg in the way that the French only the French can neg someone who actually had like done the work they hadn't done. And it is interesting that one of the main complaints that Vigneron have about fr the French wine press is that they just they're like, well, the, the way they put it is they never leave Paris. But if they do, and, and this is just endemic, I mean, you know this, of, of like how French media works, they don't like a writer doesn't take an assignment unless basically the syndicat has a, essentially agreed to and usually paid for that article in some way. Yeah, there, there's a lot that we could talk about in terms of the ethics of certain French journalistic standards, but also just sort of a lack of 
really going going the you know the extra mile but i think part of that has to do with how poorly they're paid but you're right there is it's a def it's a different but, but, way of functioning I mean, all the way up to i mean the, the example i always use like you I mean you don't run a story about macron without clearing quotes with daily say oh well yeah that's you know this is very there's a whole lot of liberté except for the parts where there aren't so i, I mean you it's know it's too reverential if there is positive response, that is great. But I, you know, I can understand where there's there was there would be reasonable frustration. Um, I, the vigneron who have read it or have seen it um, are generally, you know, they're happy. They it's interesting even on this trip, they tend to like they, they don't really care about the narrative chat book, which of course is the one that I put all the work into. Um, <laughs> they're curious to look through the producers and see who else is there because that intense sense of belonging that the French have and the sense of, cl- of a kind of clubbiness and affiliation and having to see if you're like in the right crowd. All they care about is not even what I said about them, but like who else is there and like were they featured with the right people. But, you know, look, the, the, there, there are also people like I'm thinking of like Yvon Massonat, who um, who has Domaine Balargus in in the Loire and was very kind to invite me as the speaker to the the Pôle d'Anjou this summer. And he gets it. I mean, he has done a lot of this research, but I think it's the people, it's the, the, the vineyard who I think have fought that fight and who realize that they are not alone. And I think, you know, seeing that there is this framework that explains all of the pain they have endured, like they like it. So that actually is fulfilling to me because. Right. And you're recognizing them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they feel seen. Right. So I have two final questions. I can't overlook the passage on natural wine because we are living in this moment in the last eight to 10 years uh, where it has just exploded alongside bistronomy, which is, you know, the food movement that has really, really shifted the dining landscape in Paris. Um, And you and I regularly discuss this, but I like what you've, it's funny, what you call uh, the culture around natural wine, you call it sandbox insularity. And I think that merits a bit of discussion. Uh, what do you mean by that? So that's a really good follow on to what I was just saying. Exactly. Which is that there is this innate French desire and tendency to want to belong. And there is, um, I think, probably or perhaps because of laicite, you know, so if you take away kind of one identifying principle, which is your religion, people will look for other ways to identify. And so what's your sports team? What trade union are you part of? No, pick it. Um, I'm Those having, are two good examples. Yeah, yeah. but um, but so there is this this very strong sense of I was going to say inclusivity, but it's not inclusivity, oh. affiliation. Okay. And so one of the ways that I, I went at Natural Wine, and that was for sure the hardest chapter to write because not not because of the writing, but because it took me so long to find the right analogies and to dump things like oh, it's just punk, which it's not. I mean, it's maybe in a little way, but actually, it's a really bad analogy, and I ended up talking a lot about modern art and the refusé and the Salon de refusé and that kind of gave me a framework. And again, the way that, you know, that you are completely an outcast and unacceptable in French culture until one day you are beloved. And then it's always been that way. And yes, of course, Manet and Van Gogh and, and, and Monet were um, geniuses. And we always knew that. Except for the part where the Academy de Beaux-Arts basically just, you know, kicked them to the curb for 30 years. So, so natural so, wine is that. So natural wine is very much that. But the thing is that it is in part the inability for natural wine to be given a seat at the table. But it's also, and this was my point, was it's the inability of natural winemakers to understand the ways in which they have transformed the system 
because they are so into hanging out with each other and smoking their cigarettes, you know, outside in the cold and just like broing down that they can't actually see the ways in which there is a larger world that's willing to engage with them because they're so, I mean, there's a weird persecution complex. So it's A, that they're like, there is this need for belonging and to be and they align themselves with other natural winemakers, but only certain natural winemakers. And I'll, I'll spare the long um, example of Domain Beinbach in Alsace because I know we have more questions, but it's not just like, oh, well, these are these are the rules you have to follow, even though, yes, in 2019, there was an approved Sendika for natural wine and there is a, 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 a Van Methode Nature, I think designation that the e now now controls to the point of like everyone ends up as part of the establishment um and ends up like following the rules in the end which is bizarre for a movement that's supposed to have no rules but it's not at all inclusive it's very much like you know do you like hang out and do you listen to mc solar and all the vintage hip-hop and do you are you we're stussy yeah exactly yeah do you have you know like are we bros or not so um that would be the quote-unquote sandbox insularity. Well, there's lots more to unpack about natural wine. You'll just have to read that chapter. But I'd like to conclude with something. Um, we, we've just spent this time talking about the new France and, and what is the new French wine. What do we do, though, with the old France that everyone knows and apparently loves? Burn it to the ground? Um, no. Uh, I mean, so... This this goes very much back to to your question about myth. You know, what's interesting about the new French wine, but honestly, the new French everything is that when it exists in its best form, it is entirely an evolution of what has come before, which is to say we could pull sort of nearly any of the wines in the book uh, out and I could give you a very detailed explanation on why it is simply the progression from a, a wine and a, a culture and a, a tradition that existed 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 150 years ago. And it's one reason that in the first chapter of the book, I highlight three key viticultural texts from the 19th century, like Jules Guyot, who is one of the most famous uh, ampelographers and wine researchers and sort of everything researchers of his of his day, kind of did what I did, but even, even more detail. He spent like seven years compiling a three-volume book about every single wine tradition in France. And so whether it's that, whether it's astronomy, whether it's uh, art, the thing that I am optimistic about is that all of these things that come are not net new. They are very much built on the best of French tradition. And to the point of myth and the way that people get mired in this, my, my example to you before was Midnight in Paris, which I like a lot as a movie, but is literally just kind of bathing in the worst cliches about how Americans believe in in France is that there's nothing wrong with embracing the new by seeing how it has moved on from the old. But it is also acknowledging that the old is just that. It's old. And if you don't see the ways that things move on, then you you enter very dangerous territory, like, say, if you want to, I don't know, make America great again. I knew you were going to say that. So, yeah, we don't want to keep France great again. We want to keep it evolving. John, thank you so much. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening, as always. If you're streaming this on Spotify, be sure to check out a little poll that awaits you pertaining to this discussion. 
Just scroll down on the episode page within the app and vote. And if you enjoy the show, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with a friend, and pick up the books that inspired it, The New Paris and The New Parisienne. Until next time, à bientôt.